2: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here's our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
0: Let's pray. Father, do open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, when they saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was a hundred and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. And the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Now, okay, we've come to chapter 12 here, which starts with these words, at that time when Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. Now, even though we've come to a new chapter here, the words at that time, they tie us very specifically back to chapter 11, which ended with the greatest invitation that the Lord Jesus has ever made to individuals to stop their war with God that has resulted in a life of restlessness and fear. And of course, that invitation, great words in the last verses of chapter 11 were in verses 28 and 30 of chapter 11, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I'm meek, lowly in heart, and you'll find rest unto your souls. My willk is easy and my burden is light. That was the Lord's great invitation, which is really just one word. Come, come, come home to the Lord Jesus. Come to him for rest, a rest that of at least 11 things, just to name a few, of number one, come to him for the rest of peace with God. It says in in Romans 8, we have peace with God. Come to him, number two, for a rest of a purpose in life that doesn't result in, in trying to gain the whole world and losing your soul. Number three, come to him to the rest of becoming clean before God. And number four, Come to him for the rest of being forgiven for 100%, all, complete total, of all the sins ever committed. Number five, come to him for the rest of becoming a friend of God's. Number six, come to him for the rest of becoming adopted as a child of God, no longer abandoned. How does it say in that him an outcast no longer? Number seven, come to him for the rest of being cared for by God. Come to him for the privilege of being able to say, ro e, the Lord is my shepherd. Number eight, come to him for the rest of just stop worrying about the unknown. What's going to happen to me tomorrow? What's going to happen to me after I die? Number nine, come to him for the rest of simply just trusting, to be able to just trust God, just to be able to say, my father knows, my father will provide. Number 10, come to the rest, come to him for the rest of becoming righteous with his righteousness and not based on my works, on my good works. Number 11, come to him for the rest of just having a home, knowing that I have a home in heaven, knowing that he was talking to me when he said, I go to prepare a place for you in John 14. That offer of rest is what the Lord Jesus will be making for all of his ministry. That's it. It's an offer to come. And right after he made this offer of rest, he's on a mission in verse one here. At that time that he's made his offer, that that we find the Lord Jesus on his way to, traveling to a synagogue of the Pharisees that he finally reaches in verse nine, when it says, and when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. So in verse one, he's on his way to that synagogue where he will seek to save the lost with his offer of rest. And we might ask, when we see him on his way to the synagogue, we say, a synagogue of the Pharisees? Why in the world would he go to the center of his enemies, the Pharisees, where they are? Why would he go there? And the answer to that question is that because the synagogue is the so-called house of God, it's where people go to find God. And so he has an interest in finding these people that want to find God. And he knows that when the people who want to find God have gone to the synagogue, what they have found is traditions, and rules about what you can do and you can't do, especially on the Sabbath. He knows that. And so he's going to the synagogue so he can find the people that want to find God, the true God. That reminds me of when we had our house in the Orthodox area in Los Angeles, and a Jewish believer there named Reuben lived in the same area, and he said to me one day, he said to me, Why don't you just put up a sign in your front lawn that says, come here to find the true God? (laughs) I thought, that's not a good idea, (laughs) anyway. So the Lord is going to the synagogue so that the people can find the true God, and it happens to be on the Sabbath day of all days that he's traveling to the synagogue. Now, it looks like, we don't know, but it looks like the disciples were so rushed that they forgot to pack a lunch. You know, we see that other places. And so so they, they forget to pack a lunch. They're walking through a field. And now the King James says it was a cornfield, And it mentions ears of corn. And we're apt to think of corn and ears of corn. But the Greek doesn't say corn. I think the King James translator, they must have loved corn or something. They had a particular love for corn. For some reason, they were very... Corny, oh, that's a corny joke, sorry. (laughs) Anyway, they use this word throughout the King James, corn, it's used 102 times in 94 verses and ears of corn. The problem is... The problem is that corn came from the Americas. It came from the Indians here, and Indians in Mexico and Central America and South America, and it was not introduced into Europe and into the Middle East until over a 1,000 years after the Bible was written. So... That's just a little minor problem with using the word corn. So the words used in the Bible that are translated as corn, they don't mean corn. They mean the grains like wheat and barley. And that explains why in Luke 6, 1. And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, No one would ever rub a corn husk in their hands (laughs) unless they thought it was some sanitizer or something like that. But anyway, but you would rub wheat and barley in your hands to separate the husk from the grain. So anyway, the bottom line is, and this is not the great point of today's lesson, but anyway, when you see corn in the King James, think wheat or barley. I don't know why they said corn. If they, I would have told if they asked me, but what can I do? You know. So, all right. So, so the disciples have forgotten to bring lunch and they're on their way to the synagogue. But that's no problem. They forgot to bring lunch. That's no problem because they're walking through a grain field. Oh, that's very convenient. So they pull off stalks of grain and they rub the husks in their hand to separate the grain from the husk. And, uh, you know, there they are eating their Rice Krispies there, you know. So... They're not stealing the grain. You might look there and say, what? They're stealing the grain? Now they're guilty of, they're not stealing the grain because it was allowed for them to eat the grain as long as they took the stalks by hand and they didn't use a sickle, okay? Because it says specifically in Deuteronomy 23, 25, Deuteronomy 23, 25, Moses wrote, when thou comest into the standing corn, ay ay ay, corn again, grain, Okay, when thou comest into the standing grain, says corn, of thy neighbor, that then thou mayest pluck the ears, stalks. Okay. Then thou mayest pluck the stalks with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. Grain. Okay? Don't get distracted by all this. The point is, is that what it's saying is that when you walk through a grain field and you see the stalks, You can take them as long as you don't take and implement for a mass harvest, i.e. a sickle. Now, what a great system that was that God set up in Israel. That's nice. You know, the hungry traveler could go on and grab a handful of anyone's grain in the field when he gets hungry. And furthermore, for the poor, God set it up so that the harvesters were not allowed to go back a second time over a field that's being harvested, that in other words, whatever fell on the ground during the harvest process had to be left on the ground for the poor. The poor would come and gather it. That's nice, nice system. So that's why the Pharisees did not accuse the disciples of, oh, stealing grain, I caught you red-handed. They didn't do that because it was allowed. But the Pharisees did bring an accusation against the disciples, in verse two, but when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. It wasn't that they were taking the stocks and rubbing. Mean, it wasn't that they were taking the stocks and eating, but it says when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him. Now, first of all, just one step back. It says when the Pharisees saw it, they stood unto him. Well, what were they doing in the grain fields there, hiding amongst the stalks, you know? It, yeah, they were. It was, I gotcha. As far as the Lord Jesus and the disciples were concerned, they were on the radar screen of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were dogging the trail of the Lord Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees are following him, they're following his disciples. He has enraged the Pharisees and they now have a goal to destroy him and all they need is the evidence, the basis. As a matter of fact, from here on out in his ministry, his three-year public ministry is just going to be a series of cat and mouse maneuvers where his movements are going to be determined by where the Pharisees have set out traps for him, where the Pharisees are especially geared up to destroy him. Reminds me how the, uh, the Jews for Jesus operate in Israel today during their so-called campaigns. They have these campaigns called Behold Thy God campaigns. And what they do, among many things, is that they go out as teams and they stand on street corners holding these banners that say something like Jesus is the Messiah or whatever. And so, But they know that they have something like 22 minutes to the minute to stand there with their banners from the time that they get their banners out there before the Orthodox arrive and do what they're gonna do, which in one case, they stabbed one of their workers with a screwdriver. So from the time that they stand there with their banner, the clock starts ticking, and when it hits 22 minutes, we're done, and they go. So it's a little bit similar to the Lord there. They were dogging his tracks, and now comes the accusation in verse two. The Pharisees saw it, They said unto him, behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. So what was that? Busted, you know, the Pharisees think. Now they've got them busted. We got you now. Your disciples are breaking the law, and uh, you said you didn't come to destroy the law, but in fact, you are clearly doing that. You're destroying the law by not teaching your disciples to obey the law, and now what law was they referring to exactly? Disciples breaking? Well, that's easy, That's easy, because it says in Exodus 20.10, Exodus 20.10 says, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that's within thy gates. So there they got it. Not do any work on the Sabbath. And the question becomes, what constitutes work that's not to be done on the Sabbath? Well, that requires a definition of what the work is not allowed to be done on the Sabbath. I mean, after all, it's, it takes work to breathe, so maybe you shouldn't breathe on the Sabbath and everybody dies. You know? So who determines that? Who determines what work is not allowed on the Sabbath? Well, the Pharisees, oh, the Pharisees, they take on that role of determining the rules for what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath, or more specifically, The elders, as it says in Mark 7, 3, Mark 7, 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Who are these elders? Well, these elders just happen to have been and happen to be the Pharisees and the scribes. So they're the ones who establish and continue to establish traditions. And they continue to generate new ones, new traditions. And the Lord had some comments about these traditions, what he called them, their own traditions. He called them commandments of men in Mark 7, 7. Mark 7, 7. How in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. You get the two terms? commandment of men and traditions of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like you do. For he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. So they're called commandments of men, they're called traditions of men, they're just called your own tradition. And the Lord said that all these traditions or these commandments of men have invalidated or nullified, or made of none effect the word of God. They've invalidated the word of God. They have nullified, that's what he said in Matthew 15, 6. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So by taking a simple command from God to not do any work on the Sabbath, they have burdened the people They burdened them up with a load of rules that tell the people how they must keep that command. The command gets lost and all the rules take its place. That's how they did it. So by imposing all those rules on the people, the scribes and Pharisees have become rulers with greater power over the people. Similar to the rules imposed with all these kind of rules during a pandemic rules about wearing masks, about where people can go and not go, how many people can be in a building, if you can sing, if you can hum, if you can chant, if you can mourn, if you can moan, you can groan, you can complain. All these rules that have been put on that make the rulers more powerful over the people. And if the pandemic ends, then the rulers have less people. That's not a good thing. And so fortunately, the Word of God says that they not do any work, so that never ends. So they, oh, the rules just continue. So by applying all these rules of what can and can't be done on the Sabbath, the rulers gain more power over the people. And now the Pharisees have used their traditions to denounce the Lord Jesus by denouncing him for allowing his disciples to violate the Torah, the law. So the traditions did allow the people to eat on the Sabbath, and they still do, but what was not allowed, the Pharisees we're referring to as, as unlawful was taking the stalks and rubbing them to get the, the grain out, okay, I suppose. Anyway, so that's the issue here at hand in verse two. Now, in verse three, it's wonderful, the first words of verse three before the comma is, are wonderful when it says, but he said unto them. So the Lord was not accused of violating law. Evidently, he was not taking these stalks and rubbing them in his hands. It was his disciples doing that. So the Lord himself was not violating the so-called law. And they didn't say to the Lord, why are you doing that which is not lawful on the Sabbath day? Now, The Lord could have said, but he never would have said And he didn't say that, and that's what's so wonderful. He didn't say something like, well, it's not me, it's them. You got a problem with them? Go talk to them. Of course, he would never do that because he would never throw his disciples under the bus. But what's wonderful is to see how the Lord rushes in now to defend his disciples, kind of like that hymn that says, he saw me plunged in deep distress and flew to my relief. So he saw the disciples being attacked indirectly and he flew to their relief. As a matter of fact, the disciples were the ones who were violating their traditions. And as a matter of fact, the disciples did not say a word during this thing. In a sense, all the disciples had to really do was to stand down and let the Lord stand up for them. And this is what makes verse three so wonderful because in verse three, we see the Lord fighting for his disciples when he steps in, but he said unto them, very much a picture of the Lord's description in Exodus 14, 14. Exodus 14, 14, which says, the Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Now, what would it have been like, just imagine, it didn't happen, but just imagine what it would have been like if one of the disciples stepped forward and just said, who are you accusing? of doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. I mean, what would it have been like if one of the disciples said, you're looking for a fight? you found a fight. You know, I'll take you on, Pharisees. Let's go for it. So if that would have happened, can't you picture the Lord saying to that disciple, look, one of us is gonna take on the Pharisees and it's either gonna be you or me. So if you decide, because if you decide you're gonna take on the Pharisees, then I'll stand down and watch you. But I'm standing here now between you and the Pharisees to take them on. So if you stand down, then I'll stand in. Now, isn't that the way it is in our lives? Isn't that the way it is in our lives? Satan is the representatives. They come and they defy us. They accuse us. They want to rise up for the fight. And we have a choice. Either we're gonna rise up for the fight or we're gonna stand down and let the Lord stand in between us and the enemy And let the Lord be the, Exodus 14, 14, Lord who fights for you, and we should hold our peace. But what we see the disciples doing in verse 3 is an example of what we should do in life, which is to pray and to ask the Lord to fight for us while we hold our peace. You know, that's an interesting phrase, hold our peace. I don't know if it gives you the kind of scene that it does for me because sometimes sometimes I feel like my peace is like a bird that wants to fly away, you know? And I got to grab it by the tail, you know. <laughs> my, my, my peace wants to fly away and I want to set the record straight and I got to grab that bird of peace and by the tail and pull him back. Hold on to your peace. Hold your peace.